Hey, good morning. Welcome to Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. My name is Pastor Roy, and I am the lead pastor here. And we're excited that today you've joined us for our online service. And uh, we're, we're into part two of this series, Emote Control. Now, just a reminder, we are going to be taking communion at the end of service or at the end of the message. So if you want to gather some food or drink, something that you're going to take for communion, uh, now might be a good time, but hurry back. You don't want to miss any of the message. But we're into part two of this series called Emote Control, where we're diving deep into our emotions, into our feelings. Now, for some of you, this idea of just dealing with your emotions or your feelings is so uncomfortable. You, you don't like to talk about your emotions. Maybe you were brought up that way. Maybe in your home, there were certain emotions that were good emotions and certain emotions that should be avoided at all costs. So first of all, some of you need to give yourself a pat on the back that you came back for week number two. You chose to be here. Way to go. But last week we discussed that they're not good emotions or bad emotions, but our emotions will move us in a direction. And we need to choose, are we going to allow our emotions to move us away from God and, and towards destruction? Or are we going to see our emotions as an opportunity to draw closer to God and be, be more like God and put us in a, a space that's emotionally healthy? For some of you, you were taught emotional avoidance where you don't deal with your emotions directly, but you shove them down and shove them down and shove them down until eventually something's got to give. Others of you, you were, you were taught emotional indulgence, where you just let all your feelings out. Your feelings trump everything. That like a GPS, you need to follow your feelings wherever they take you. Now the truth is, neither of these practices is, is really that healthy. We looked at the example of Jesus and how he experienced this wide, wide range of emotions, even to the point of being overwhelmed when he came face to face with his own crucifixion. And by exa examining this example that Jesus gave us, we see that he confided when he was overwhelmed, he confided in those that were closest to him, three of his closest disciples. And we see that and when he's going through these struggles, he even asked them to stay close. And then he takes those struggles, he takes his emotion, and he offers it up to God in heaven. And he asks God to redeem those emotions. And above all, he chose to prioritize God's will for his life over how he felt. Because we talked about last week, your feelings won't always tell the truth. Your emotions from time to time will lie to you. And so as we continue the series, I want you to see that your emotions do not make you weak. They prove that you're human. And where your emotions take you, however, will mean everything. And so today I want to get a biblical view on the emotion of shame. Last week we talked about when our emotions surface, we're at a crossroads. You know when you come to a fork in the road and you got to choose one way or the other? One way or the other way? Well, will we allow shame to take us to the left or will we allow it to take us to the right will we allow it to take us to a place of isolation and, and fear and and just wanting to be away from everyone else or will we take it to a place of forgiveness and, and grace and allow god to work within us the first vehicle i owned uh, when i was 17 years old was a 1988 Chevy Sprint. Now, if you don't know, it's a very small little car, and I'm not a small little guy. But this, this car had a lot of legroom when you, 
when you push the seat all the way back. And I think I talked about this car in a, another sermon where um, I, think I, I think I told a story about how I took that little car and tried, and, it, and I went into a big, big hole that hit the engine and moved my engine back like six to eight inches. Well, the bonus of this car was it was incredible on gas. And like for back in like 1993, you could fill this car for under like $11. And the other thing that was an advantage was if you blew a tire, because it's sm- such small wheels, if you blew a tire, the spare was actually just another tire, not, not the smaller, like a smaller donut tire. And so that's pretty much all the advantages this vehicle had. The disadvantages were that even though it had a lot of legroom in the front, if you pushed the seat all the way back, nobody could sit behind you. And the other thing was, if you were to race against a riding lawnmower, you would probably lose that race. But I love this car. In fact, I grew to love this car, but it wasn't my first choice. See, my first choice when I went car shopping is I fell in love with a used car. It was a 1988 Nissan Pulsar. And it was like this red sporty car, like the, the, the roof part, portions came out like a sort of a T roof type of thing. It was, it was incredibly sporty. And I just, it almost looked like Magnum PI's car, the budget version of his Ferrari. And, and I, I wanted that vehicle, but I had this deal with my parents that I was going to pay half of whatever car I chose. Well, considering I hadn't done a very good job of saving up, I only had a small budget. And that budget was, was not enough to buy the, the Nissan Pulsar. So the Chevy Sprint was the consolation prize. Now, I'm older now, and I look at different things when I'm looking for a car. Gas mileage actually matters. Safety rating actually matters now. But back then, those were not the priorities. The priority, the priority at the time was, how cool am I going to look in this vehicle? So. Well, I wouldn't say I was ashamed of my car as a 17-year-old. I don't know if I was that proud of it. In, in the crank up my radio so everybody looks at me driving my really cool car kind of proud, I, I just, I, I, it wasn't a car that you, would, that you really wanted to be seen in. But it never was that more apparent than one night in particular. I used to work at White, White Rose, and many of you might remember the garden center. It was like all over the place, and now they no longer exist. But I, I worked at White Rose as a carryout. My job was to carry soil to your car if you, if you had a whole bunch of heavy bags of soil and you loaded. I got to drive the forklift. I got to stock things. I got to be outside. It was a great job. I actually loved it. But when I would leave White Rose in Whitby, and I would drive to uh, my girlfriend's house, which is now my wife, Jen, when I drove to her house in the south end of Oshawa, there was a path that I used to take, a road that I used to take, that went in down by the industrial buildings behind the General Motors in Oshawa. And, and the reason I tell you that is because it's in the industrial area, it wasn't really a high traffic area. There was hardly ever anybody on that road. And just a couple of years before, they had repaved this big long stretch. So it was a really nice drive. This, this road, it was like fresh pavement, nicely, nicely uh, uh, manicured around the outside with trees and bushes and stuff. And it was just, it was a, it was a nice stretch of, of road. And I used to drive that back and forth when I would go to her house after work. Well, one night I'm heading um, down this road. Like I said, there's hardly any, anybody ever there. And I'm getting to the corner where I turn onto this like long stretch. And there's a lot of people. 
And I mean a lot of people standing in this corner. And, and so I, instantly I'm like, what's, what's going on? What's happening? Like, it looks like dozens of people are standing on this corner. As I approach the corner onto the main stretch, I discover that what I've stumbled upon is a street race, like a drag street race. And unauthorized, of course, illegal, of course, but definitely organized because as I turn the corner, I realize it's not just a dozen people or a couple dozen people. There's like three to 500 people stretched out right down this long stretch. I mean, it was a good stretch to be able to race cars on because there were no potholes. It was a, and, and, and no one was hardly ever there. And so all these people had come to watch these cars race and in this long stretch of like two, three rows deep of people along this road. And here I come, I turn onto the corner not knowing what I'm about to come upon. And these two sporty, uh, probably fast cars ready to race each other everybody in anticipation of this race starting and all of a sudden around the corner comes this little red chevy sprint and these two cars have to move out of the way as i drive squeeze my car through them i interrupt this whole race and i'm driving down this stretch with people lined down both sides as i'm driving and i'm looking to my left and looking to my right and they're cheering for me like more of a mocking cheer because they came to watch these fast cars and probably the most unsporty car, this little sprint, is driving. And I'm, I'm wearing my red sweatshirt from White Rose with my name tag. And, I'm, and I feel like if I don't want to draw attention to myself because of how uncool my car is, this is the worst place I could possibly be. And so, in that moment, I just kind of wanted to sort of let the ground eat me up and just disappear. Uh, as a 17-year-old, I cared about how cool I looked still, and it was embarrassing. I wanted to be anywhere but there. That's what shame does. It moves you from wanting to be it moves you from wanting to be isolated, wanting you, wanting to hide, wanting to be outside of the public eye. We see this no more than in the creation story with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's first sin, they disobey God and they and they feel shame. And when they do that, one of the first thing they do, they they cover themselves. And as we read on, we discover that. They would hide from God, but before they did, they hid from each other. See, they begin this story as husband and wife, naked and unashamed, but now they feel shame and they decide they need to cover themselves. The reason for this is this. Shame will ruin intimacy. Where there are secrets and silence, there is a lack of intimacy. When you're keeping things away from each other, where there is a part of your life that you're hiding from someone else, you destroy intimacy. Not just between one another, but you destroy intimacy with God. We see that with Adam and Eve. They feel this shame, even though they, that God knows what they did. They hide from God. So as we will for the next few weeks, we're going to focus on one of King David's psalms. Now, psalms is this collection of songs and poetry, and half of them are accredited to David. He was said to be the author of, of close to 75 different psalms. Today, I want to look at, at Psalm 32. In this psalm, David talks about what it's like to live with shame. 
He talks what what it's like to deal with shame, but he also talks what it's like to be set free from shame. So to understand this psalm, you need to understand the backstory in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And in that story, read about David having an affair with Bathsheba. Now, many of you know this story, but David goes up onto his palace roof one night, and he has this view of Bathsheba, and she's out bathing on her roof. Now, David's palace likely sat elevated above many of the other dwellings from from the, the kingdom, and often a person would bathe on their roof using the rainwater that had been trapped there so that this was not an odd event. This was not Bathsheba flaunting herself. This was customary of the day. And so after noticing Bathsheba and being captivated by her, he asked his servants, who is that? Find out who that is. And the servants come back and they tell David it's Bathsheba. But they don't just give him her name. They remind him that he or she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David knows Uriah, her husband. Uriah is one of David's men. Uriah is out on the battlefield, and likely in past wars, David has fought alongside with Uriah. So they make sure that he knows this woman is not available, David. In fact, she is the wife of one of your soldiers. But David ignores this little tidbit. He summons for her. And I'm not sure what's going through his mind when, when in this moment when he summons for her. Maybe he's having this, this internal discussion where he's trying to convince himself that he just wants to meet her. That he just wants to have a discussion. That he just wants to make sure that her well-being is okay. That he has no intention of crossing any lines that he shouldn't. I don't know what the running dialogue is in his head. But it doesn't matter if he had good intentions. David has an affair. He crosses the line and has an affair and convinces himself that no one will ever find out. But the problem is Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Despite the fact that Uriah has been out on the field in war for months. And now David's in trouble. So often when we do something that we're not proud of, it requires us to either come clean or cover it up. That's the path David's chosen. He summons Uriah back from the war. This is his plan. He brings him back with the war, and he hopes that if he brings Uriah back from the war, and people know that Uriah was back for a period of time, when this baby's born, and they kind of draw the lines, they'll discover, oh, it was probably, like, there would be no suspicion. This is Uriah's child. But Uriah is guilt-stricken when he returns home. He wants to be with his men. He feels bad that he, they're out there fighting and he's back here in the king's palace. And so instead of going home, he decides he's going to camp out at the edge of the palace and not go home, not spend time with his wife because he does not want to take in any of the pleasures that his men do not have the privilege of taking. So now David's plans backfired. So he goes in deeper. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with his secret message for Joab, the general on the field. And he tells Joab to send Uriah to the front lines where the fighting is the hottest, assuring Uriah will not survive. And it works. Uriah dies and David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. 
And it looks like David's gotten away with it. Except you never fully escape. Often the shame that ensues is worse than the sin being brought to light. Psalm 32 is written by David during the, this period of his, his life where he's feeling the weight of that shame. Where even though it looks like he was able to cover up his tracks, he took it, uh, it, it took on his thoughts. It, it just, it bared down on him more than he could, that he could hold. So verse, verse 1 says this, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. So he begins talking about emotions. See, in our world, uh, there's an emotion that seems to beat all, and it's happiness. I mean, we all, I think we all want to be happy. We say this all the time. We say things like, I just want to be happy. Or whatever makes you happy. Or I just, I just want my kids to be happy. Well, David says, do you want to be happy? If you want to be happy, here's what it looks like. It looks like being forgiven. Forgiven of your sins. If you want to be happy, it means you bring what's in darkness out into the light so that you, your spirit, are free. That's happiness. He says, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. You see, you notice David leads with letting you know of his sin. And it's interesting the word choice that he uses here, and it's not by accident. He uses this word disobedience. He doesn't use the word mistake. He doesn't use the word misstep. He doesn't use the word slip up. Disobedience. Disobedience infers that you knew what you were doing was wrong and you chose to do it anyway. And so when you bring it out into light, when you, you move towards freedom, you move towards grace, you move towards forgiveness when you confess. And ultimately, when you do that, when you confess and you have forgiveness, the emotion of happiness that you desire, it follows. You see, David had to get to this place where he called his sin sin disobedience but he didn't start there because initially his idea is to cover up his sin with more sin and he believes the best course of action is just to make sure he destroys the evidence that would point to his guilt he believes that the worst thing that could happen in this moment is that someone would find out what he's done but he discovers that the worst thing isn't that no one discovers your secret. The worst thing that can happen is that you make it through your whole life where no one discovers your secret and you die a fraud. And the whole time you missed out on the joy and the freedom that confession to God actually offers. And so David hides his adultery with murder. See, shame that's not dealt with will push us into further shame. We will cover our shame with shame. It's, it's one of the strategies that those that carry shame with them, those are the things that they will employ. We will destroy evidence. We'll withdraw. We'll cover shame with shame. And one of the other things that we do is this. We tend to avoid anyone that may remind us of our shame. I think that's what happens with so many people in church. 
Maybe you're watching today and you haven't been in church in, in a long time. Many, many, many of you that are watching can think of people who used to be in church but haven't been in church in a long time. For some people, they were hurt or, or they were, someone did something or said something that hurt them. Maybe that's you today. And I'm sure if I heard your story, I would agree with you that what, what was done to you was wrong. And you have every right to be hurt. For others, they stopped attending after a while, and then it just kind of became hard to come back. Because maybe they felt like they were disappointing God or they were running from God, and going to church just reminds them how far they've actually strayed away. There's this shame, and instead of going back to the place that people should embrace them because they've wandered away, they stay back because they don't believe that God will welcome them back with open arms, and they definitely don't believe that his people will either. Can I say to you that today, if that's, if that's you, if you haven't been at church or been part of church in a long time, that God opens his arms and he welcomes you back. Hey, APA, uh, we would love to welcome you back. We'd love for you to be part, even if it's, you haven't been part of our church, we would love to welcome you back to be able to discover the plan that God's got for your life. One of the other things that we do when we are trying to, uh, one of the strategies we use with shame is we get defensive. Many times people, won't, they won't even entertain the conversation with someone, even when someone points something out like a blind spot and says, hey, you know what? And it, you get a little more on edge. You get a little defensive. Another strategy to avoid shame is we blame. Instead of feeling the shame, we blame others. Many times a person who's critical of others for something is often guilty of the same thing. And so what we do is we distract, we distract our own shame by pointing out other people's faults. So we read in 2 Samuel that God sends this prophet, Nathan, to confront David in his sin. And Nathan tells David a parable, story that's not real, but David doesn't know it's not real. He tells us of this poor man who owned this sheep. And it was the only sheep that he owned, and he loved this sheep dearly. And then there was a rich man who had all kinds of livestock. And so this rich man throws together this feast and, and has a bunch of people over. And, and for his barbecue, he wants rack of lamb, I guess. And he decides that he needs, wants a sheep, but he doesn't want to take one of his own. So he takes this poor man's only sheep and he fires up the barbecue with it. And David hears this story and he's outraged. And when asked what he should do, David says, this man should be put to death. This is just ridiculous. And Nathan looks at him and says, you're that guy. It wasn't the sheep I was talking about. It was another man's wife. And you're the guilty party. Well, in this moment, David becomes so overcome with grief and guilt and repentance. Like, I'm sure he was so emotional in the moment, but part of that emotion was relief as finally he's allowed to be able to just let it all out. This the shame he's been carrying, he's, he, he can unburden himself with. And he gets to this place where he owns what he's done. Here's the transition in Psalm 32.3. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. It's just, when, when you're carrying shame with you, it does a physical toll on you. Day and night, your, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. 
That was the guilt. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. See, this is the blueprint. If you're feeling shame today with something you've been trying to hide, the message isn't just, don't, just stop feeling that way. Because your shame is real. But it doesn't have to be permanent. Confess. Confess it before God. Bring what's in the dark. Bring it to the light. See, David goes from hiding his shame and his guilt to writing about it for people to be able to read for future generations. God can't heal what you choose not to reveal. David says, you forgave me, all my guilt is gone. It's these two sentences, but they're put together. You forgave me, all my guilt is gone. You forgave me, all my guilt is gone. See, for many of you that grew up in church, these two sentences linked together is important. Because you learned that God forgave you, that your sin disappears, but his forgiveness should also remove your guilt. You're taught, you were taught that Jesus forgives you of your sin, but you, but you need to still feel bad about it for the rest of your life. Maybe that's, what, that's the mindset that you've had. You believe that God forgave you, and so your sin gets buried never to be seen again. But you haven't accepted that he removes your guilt as well. See, what many of you have done is grab, you've grabbed a spade, and this sin has been buried, and you've grabbed a spade, and you've dug in, and you've dug in, and you've, you've dug up the sin, and you've embraced it again. Even though God has forgiven you, you can't let go of the guilt. And so you hold on to it, and it becomes heavy again. And you carry that shame around with you, something you've already been forgiven for. You see, Jesus didn't just take your sin with him upon the cross. He took your shame with him as well. And when we don't fully grasp this concept, when we dig up our past, when we dig up our sins, and we continue to carry them around with us, we water down the sacrifice that he made for us. Let's be clear. Jesus forgives your sins when you confess them. But he also takes your shame. He didn't just die for your sin, but he died for those feelings that are connected to the sin so that you can truly walk in freedom. I want to wrap up with verse 11. It's how David ends this psalm. He says, So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. He starts with disobedience. And he finishes with obedience. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Let's pray. God, I pray for those that are listening this morning. and Perhaps they've been carrying something with them for months, years, decades. Something that they've, their biggest fear is, is that they would be discovered. Yet all the while, the physical toll and the mental toll and the emotional toll that carrying that shame with them is, is done more damage than anything. I pray, God, look, that they would bring that uh, 
out of the darkness, that shame that they carry, into the light and confess to you. And when they do, they would let it go and allow you to do a work within them. Allow you to just break free the chains that are holding them back and holding them down. God, I pray for those that uh, haven't been connected to church. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue just to speak to them. God, the fact that they are listening right now tells me that there is something that you're doing in their lives right now. And I pray that they would not uh, go the other way and, and, and run from it, God, but I pray that they would embrace it and seek after you because your forgiveness and your grace is endless. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that each of us, uh, we, would, we would look at how we can uh, be all the better, how we can be more effective for you when we choose to walk in freedom, when we choose to walk guilt-free, how we be able to walk lighter and live lighter. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, if you've prepared uh, for communion, um, you can you can grab the elements that you've that you've got beside you, and um, I'm just going to open up to First Corinthians eleven uh, twenty three, and it says here that. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and then when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you've got your bread or cracker or whatever it is that you have, we're going to take that together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. If you've got your, your cup or your juice, we're going to take that together now. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that when you were in the garden, of Gethsemane, and you, and you were coming face to face with this decision. And your emotions were overwhelming you. That, Lord, you didn't push away. You didn't allow your emotions to be your decision maker. But, God, you put the, the will of your Father over everything. And you chose to go to the cross on my behalf, on every person that is listening, on their behalf to wipe away their sin. But God, I pray that they would know that when you went to the cross, it was more than just their sin that you took upon you. It was also their shame. And so God, I pray that we would, we would look at this work that you did on the cross and understand that it's complete. That there's nothing else for us to do. That when we accept the gift of salvation, that we truly are free. God, we ask this in your name. Amen.